1: Look at up. And I'm watching CNN talk about this as violent white nationalist protests. We have done everything
2: in our power to keep this peaceful, you know? It's uh, Pepe's become
0: kind of a symbol. Welcome to Yena Pesaran, a show about fascism and its gravediggers. I'm Cam Smith. I'm Andy Fleming. And this week, we are joined by Dr. Megan Tinsley. Megan is a Presidential Fellow in Ethnicity and Inequalities at the University of Manchester, as well as being the author of Commemorating Muslims in the First World War Centenary. Thanks for joining us, Megan.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: I guess just to begin with, this book's been released through Routledge's Memory Studies series. Could you tell us what are Memory Studies?
1: (sighs) That's a good question. It's a big question. Uh, memory studies is a, a small but I would say growing and increasingly interdisciplinary field that examines the way that the past constructs the present, and also the way that the present constructs the past. So, for example, I'm interested in the way that uh, states, and nations, and activists call upon the past and and remember particular events that enable them to um, make sense of the present and to give rise to a particular political program or a particular uh, set of Values in the present. Memory studies also looks at the way that that groups and communities form and construct shared identities. So we, you know, we get the sense of who we are, a general we, if uh, if we have a, a notion of a shared experience in the past, even if, and I would say especially if it's not something that. People have experienced directly and can remember directly, uh, but if it's the memory of past generations and, and say a set of events that shape that shaped the way that people see their, their their contemporary values in the present. So for me, memory studies is linked to the study of nationalism and the study of empire. But there are also subfields of memory studies that look at uh, the, the intergenerational transmission of memory uh, within families and communities. Uh, so it is really a broad church, and it's 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 a field that I think really helps us to understand where we are <laughs> collectively in the present.
0: Your book focuses particularly on the commemoration of World War I in mm-hmm. the UK and France. What was it about this commemoration that you felt it's lent into your area of research? What, what, why this and not other things?
1: Definitely. So, one one aspect of it is, is the timing. The First World War was a watershed moment in collective memory uh, in general in Europe. It marked the democratization of memory. So, prior to that, if you were a soldier, a private soldier who died in the war, in any war, you would probably be buried in a mass grave, if you were buried at all. If you were an officer, you would probably be transported home and you know buried in an elaborate family plot. But at the at the end of the First World War, there was the uh, the mass erection of monuments in uh, town centers and churches with individual names. And um, importantly, across Europe, governmental bodies committed to maintaining individual tombs and individual headstones and to respecting the uh, the graves of former enemies so this was a moment when within Europe at least memory became something that was that was collective that was national and was also individualized in a way that it hadn't been before now 100 years later Britain and France uh, in addition to other European powers were marking a, a major uh, anniversary of the war when there was no longer any real sense of living memory so in both countries there uh, by the time the centenary Rolled around, there were no longer any living uh, First World War veterans. Mm-hmm. Harry Patch was the last uh, British veteran, and he died, I think, in two thousand eight. So. The institutions that were responsible for mounting the centenary were very aware that uh, they were actively creating the memory of the war. So children who were growing up during the centenary weren't growing up hearing their grandparents tell stories of the war, that that memory was no longer living. And they saw this as an opportunity. So institutions like the Imperial War Museum, for example, closed for long periods of time and radically refurbished spaces and created new exhibitions of the First World War. And a similar process played out in France, although there there it was a bit less uh, centralized, played out increasingly at the local level. So I was interested in the First World War because the Saint Henry marked a moment of memory making. At the same time, uh, as you can tell by the title of the book, my focus is on the commemoration of Muslims in the First World War. And I came to that topic largely because of my own ignorance. I, I had studied post-colonial theory and I was particularly interested in the racialization of Muslims um, at the beginning of the 21st century, such that ideas of Britishness and Frenchness increasingly were constructed in opposition to this imagined Muslim other. But I didn't understand until about a year before the centenary, when I was doing exploratory research for my PhD, that that Muslim soldiers under the auspices of the British and French empires had played a major, significant role uh, in waging the First World War. And they had been actively and passively written out of history thereafter. So the centenary marked a moment to reclaim that memory, to reclaim that history. But it also... Meant that people who were making those decisions had to, to choose a particular narrative to pursue. So that raised the question: You know, would Muslims be represented as, say, uh, you know, loyal heroes who had sacrificed their lives for the empire? Would they be represented similarly to, to white soldiers, particularly in Britain, as? victims of war, as uh, people who had fought and died in the trenches for really this um, meaningless war that only led to to the Second World War. There were decisions to be made about how a marginalized minority that had been erased from memory would be rewritten into the past, and by extension, how they'd be rewritten into the present. So as the centenary approached, I um, I saw this as really a pivotal moment in, uh, in imagining British and French Muslims um, in the past, and in turn, imagining the role of Muslims in the contemporary nation. Uh, so it really held high mistakes for for the memory of the past and for um, imagining the present.
2: Megan, what's remembered and what's forgotten is shaped, as I think you note in the book, very much by um, contemporary concerns. What sorts of concerns were brought to bear in terms of commemorating the the centenary of the war? And how did, I guess, the contemporary situation of Muslims in Britain and France inform those decisions?
1: So, uh, I, I think a lot of the tensions of nationalism and this this question of what constitutes an, an us in quotes is clearer in retrospect than it was at the time in 2014. One of the, uh, the arguments that I make in the book is that the centenary largely failed as a nation building exercise in both Britain and France. If the goal was to create a sense of social cohesion, to create a clear sense of an us, a national us then both nations are much more openly and violently contested now than they were at the beginning of the centenary. Your question was, uh, what were the tensions of uh, of the nation at the beginning of the the First World War um, centenary? And in particular, I I think you were asking what was really the status of Muslims in national memory in both countries?
2: Yes, and, and how the contemporary situation of Muslims informed the kinds of decisions that were made by state and other institutions in terms of how they commemorated the centenary.
1: Definitely. So, in both Britain and France, the representation of Muslims, particularly as 2014 progressed, was of this increasingly militarized, increasingly violent other. Remember that uh, in the summer of 2014, this was the the moment when the rise of ISIS was on the front page of all the tabloids, and in Britain, in particular. There was a growing narrative that, that there were more British Muslims fighting for ISIS than there were in the British Army. That's not true. That's never been true. But this was the narrative, and it corresponded to this long-standing notion that Muslims were, say, potential enemies, potential potential opponents um, to uh, to uh, the British nation, and uh, that that Muslims were somehow unassimilable um, into the dominant narrative of what it meant to be British or French. So these are not new narratives, but they were particularly violent and particularly salient narratives that that fed into Islamophobia in both countries at the beginning of the First World War centenary. So that's one aspect of it. And that certainly shaped the way that Muslims were represented in the centenary. At the same time, there were other tensions and there were other perceived threats to social cohesion in both countries. So this was 2014. In Britain, this was during the coalition government, Tories and Lib Dems, and it was before Brexit. But uh, in a lot of the, the narratives, um, a lot of the, the speeches by politicians that, that marks the beginning of the centenary, there was a very real, very palpable uh, sense of Euroscepticism that pervaded them. So Cameron, for example, said that, you know, now, one hundred years ago, we had our differences, and these led to this led to wars. Now we still have our differences, and as frustrating as it may be, we uh, we hash these out uh, around a table rather than going to war. So that I mean, it, it, it's it was kind of a jab, really, at, at the sense of uh, that th- there hadn't really been any reconciliation. Um, there was still this natural animosity um, within Europe. That, that those same narratives didn't play out in France in the same way. There was a celebration of Fra- a Franco-German. Friendship and reconciliation, but uh, but in Britain certainly Euroscepticism informed the tone of the centenary um, and informed a sense that this is what would this is what would would characterise Britain's uh, memory of the First World War. And then finally, I would say in both countries, but particularly in, in Britain, there was increasing prominence that was given to the memory of empire, but it wasn't named as such. There, there were lots of references to the Commonwealth contribution uh, to the First World War, but there was no Commonwealth in 1914. It was the British Empire. But by renaming it Commonwealth, by remembering it that way, it created a way to reimagine really a, a violent um, empire as a community of, of, of brothers fighting for a common cause, um, and as the predecessor to multicultural Britain. And that was pitted largely in opposition to European tyranny. So this, this, again, is much more obvious looking back on the centenary than it was at the time, but certainly there was a very strong narrative of, uh, of a celebration of multiculturalism and then an imposition of that onto the past. Alongside that cam- came an erasure of um, the violence of the imperial past uh, and the fact that this was not um, a multicultural community bound together by a common cause, but a multicultural force that had been coerced into fighting um, a war that was not of its choosing and who fought in very hierarchical ways and and were commemorated differently or not commemorated differently on the basis of race and religion.
0: You're listening to 3CR, 855am, 3cr.org.au and 3CR Digital on your DAB radio. We're currently talking to Dr. Megan Tinsley about war and memory. But Megan, down here in this little corner of the Empire, I guess the the idea of World War One as being uh, the crucible in which the uh, Australian spirit was born on the the beaches of Gallipoli mm-hmm. is sort of a more recent invention. It's mm-hmm. something that's uh, emerged in the in the nineties as part of uh, the Howard government's uh, trend towards uh, this patriotic nationalism Mm. but with that it has also come this sort of gaslighting idea that it's always been like that Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. in the uk you there's this sort of almost religious reverence for the poppy Mm -hmm. i wonder how long has that been the case has it been a hundred years of this or is this also a more recent invention
1: Oh gosh, this is a <laughs> the, the poppy is a, it's really a fascinating story, and I think it has a very recent. Well, it's it's taken a recent turn even since the book was written. So uh, originally, the poppy it, it, it's a reference in a lot of First World War poetry to the poppies in the fields of Flanders. So even before the poppy, the cloth poppy on the lapel became a popular symbol associated with the remembrance of the First World War. That notion of red poppies did symbolize um, the blood of Flanders fields, the blood of soldiers spilt in the war. The the poppy itself um, emerged as a Symbol in the 1920s, so it was fairly uh, soon after the end of the First World War, and uh, it was for the uh, the Hague Fund. So it was a fundraising activity to um, to raise money for veterans of the First World War, and in particular those who had been who had been injured, uh, gravely injured, at war. It did become increasingly popular in the latter part of the 20th century, particularly after the Second World War. But I would say it, it really took off um, in the 21st century and took on a life of its own, really, going up into the, uh, into the centenary. Um, alongside that, uh, there was the rise of the white poppy. So as a symbol for peace, which is still, well, it is still a fundraiser and, uh, the, uh, the No Glory War campaign um, continues to raise funds by selling white poppies. You'll see occasionally purple poppies um, for animals killed at war. There's a book uh, by Stephen Bourne called Black Poppies you know, for the memory um, of soldiers of African descent who were killed in the First World War. Uh, and I, actually, I've never seen a black poppy on someone's lapel, come to think of it, but the black poppy does symbolize the deaths of, uh, of black soldiers in the First World War. So in, in that way, the poppy is taken on a life of of its own that that goes well beyond its original meaning. But even more recently, it, it's it's almost become, oh, no, it has become the, the, really the, this camp symbol of militarism, of really unreflexive celebrations of war rather than the memory of the dead. So if you uh, if you attempt to buy a poppy today and go online to do so, you're also going to find poppy onesies, um, poppy uh, zippers, um, poppy reflectors, poppy tennis shoes, poppy thongs um it's uh it it's it really is in the realm of the absurd and alongside the proliferation of poppies cop- comes well, has come, you know, the stigmatization of not wearing um, a poppy. So recently, Rishi Sunak released um, a photo of himself with his wife and their dog, and all three of them, including the dog, were wearing poppies. Um, <laughs> there's a uh, there's a Twitter account um, called Poppy Watch that really takes off at this time of year, where um, they just showcase the the absurd uh, lengths to which people go to uh, you know to showcase their patriotism, wearing a poppy. Um, and then in my own research, I came across a, a London fashion student, uh, uh Ishak, who designed a poppy hijab. Job. And her uh, her logic, her argument was that Muslim women frequently were not were not visible, were not foregrounded in commemorations of war, and that there was a perception that uh, this was a memory that was irrelevant for Muslim women, and uh, and by extension, uh, Muslim women could not participate and be patriotic, you know, with regard to the First World War. So this was uh, a fashion item and a religious symbol and uh, something you know personal that Muslim women could do to remember the First World War in their own way. But you know, alongside that comes another way to exclude Muslim women who don't uh, wear a poppy, who don't wear a poppy hijab. That's really a long-winded discussion of a complex and changing uh, symbol. That that I think maybe this is just to you know to hazard a guess. I, I think the poppy is is in decline. Um, if my own observations are anything to to go by now, uh, I see far fewer poppies on the lapels of people on the street than I did. 10 years ago, or even at the beginning of the centenary. Uh, and I think that might be because it's, it, it, the, the public has become saturated, um, by poppies. It no longer symbolizes the memory of war if it's just everywhere. If, uh, if you're going to, you know, to see it, um, regardless of, of, whether or not you choose to wear one. And it is, you know, I think it's increasingly clear that the poppy is a racialized symbol. You know, one of the Islamophobic tropes that resurges on Remembrance Day of every year is that all oh, Muslims don't wear poppies and also, um, that, it, that uh, people selling poppies have been told not to go into muslim neighborhoods because it'll be considered offensive there. Like there's no evidence that that's ever been the case anywhere, but this is one of the tabloids that just seems to perennially resurge um, around this time of year that muslims are unpatriotic because muslims don't wear poppies. And you know, uh, and, and to combat that there have been, you know, school children, um, muslim school children selling poppies and then these very self-conscious media accounts of, you know, celebrating these children for uh for commemorating the past that um, it might not be popular to remember, so the, poply, the poppy is deeply politicized, um, and it's, it really has uh, saturated popular memory of the First World War, uh, and it's continuing to change every year.
2: In the with regards Australian nationalist mythology, the Gallipoli campaign is uh, often portrayed as being the part of the birth pangs of the Australian nation mm-hmm. when Australia came to, you know, rank among the uh, countries of the world. It was a military. Disaster. Uh-huh. It involved, uh, you know, enormous uh, death and suffering, and yet it's been uh, looked upon as, I guess, historically important as being the, you know, the crucible in which the Australian nation was formed. World War One itself was, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, brutal slaughterhouse. Millions died. These are very bloody events that are being commemorated in various different ways. But I'm wondering if you can speak to why it is that war, in particular, Plays such a crucial role in nation building and in fermenting or cementing, I should say, some kind of nation, nationalism, nation state.
1: That's a that's a big question, and I think it's a really important question as well. I'm going to answer it by appearing to skirt the question, but I promise I'm I'm not. Um, I would argue that it isn't war that's fundamental to nation building, but it's the memory of war. Uh, that's fundamental to nation building. If we imagine that war is a time when entire communities of people who would have very little else in common would rally around a common cause and would, would rally under the state um and, and under the authority of the state with a willingness to sacrifice their lives uh and to sacrifice their uh, their comforts and their everyday everyday life everyday activities in the service of a greater good that's almost never what war actually is, uh, in fact, I would even venture to say that that is never <laughs> what war uh, is. War is always contested there there is always opposition, even if it's violently punished, uh, the state is always contested but that that isn't how we remember war. We remember war as being a time of of selfless sacrifice and of consolidating the nation as an idea I, I've been talking primarily about the first world War, but I think this is much more apparent if we think about the Second World War because that war has been. So overtly politicized in Britain recently, with commemorations of, uh, of the seventy-fifth anniversary of VE Day, very frequently in the right-wing press, uh, you'll uh, you'll see claims like, you know, during the first world during the, sorry during the Second World War, you. Uh, y- you, uh, you didn't have um, people um, protesting in the streets and and uh, you know claiming that Churchill was racist you know calling for vegan sausage rolls and uh, wanting all of these special modern comforts that's not true at all um, the second world war was actively contested protests were a regular fact of life including during the blitz and guess what there were special ration cards for vegetarians so none of the none of what are presented as the contemporary fractures of society are unique to this time the the idea of the nation is always contested and it always has been but the memory of a war as a time of national unity creates the idea that it is possible to, uh, to have a singular sense of what the nation is and of who belongs and of who the enemy is, um, who the other is against which the nation is constructed. So I would argue that war doesn't unify nations except by violent coercion, uh, but the memory of war does uh, unify not, certainly not every single member of the nation, but does present a singular narrative of what the nation is and what it has been.
0: As well as these wars that are fought on the battlefield, they're also all around us, culture wars being fought every day. And statues and street names are one front in that cultural war. Could you tell us a little bit about why these are so important to some people?
1: Uh, well, first of all, just calling it a cultural war is political, isn't it? Because if wars are imagined to unify people, then cultural wars are all imagined to do the same. And I think that's what people who use the term culture war you know to claim that the nation is under attack that, that that's exactly what they hope that the the term will will do um is rally the people against this imagined enemy you know of wokeness anyway but your question was about uh, statues um and monuments right so the the past is complex the past is contested the past is fragmented as i've i've noted before statues erase all of that by setting the past in stone, and by imagining that incredibly complex histories and also incredibly complex historical figures stood for something singular, uh, and that they were singularly superhuman he- and heroic, so when when we uh, general we so when the state usually here elites uh, erect a statue, they are taking the complexity and the nuance um, and the violence of history, and then tra- transforming that into a single. Clear-cut idea of who a person was, um, and of who should be celebrated. In, in viewed in that way, simply erecting a statue is a very ahistorical thing to do. It, it erases the complexity of the past. Um, so, for all the charges that pulling down statues are, um, you know, these are acts of erasing history. Really, I would argue that erecting a statue is erasing history, and pulling one down is reclaiming the complexity of past and present. Pulling a statue down is also really uh, people in the present acting in solidarity with with people who wrote counter narratives. Um, memory activists in the past. Anyway, claiming that a statue represents history is uh, is a powerful way of writing a single narrative of past and present and it's much easier to and much more palatable to Claim that Churchill, for example, as a figure who stood against fascism and stood for this uh, British Blitz spirit that uh, that um, represented unity uh, in the face of, of violence and oppression, keeping calm and carrying on, and all of those narratives. That that is a much easier narrative than to say, okay, yes, all of this is true, but our, also Churchill was a racist. Also, Churchill did claim that uh, that Indians were, uh, I think, the quote was a beastly people with a beastly religion. Um, also, Churchill was you know, responsible for famine in India under The Raj, um, and also he did bomb uh, bomb German civilians during the war. That's just to take one example, and it, it is a particularly contested uh, example. Um, Churchill, as a figure, is hotly contested, but that that is a much more difficult history to, to grapple with. Um, to say that a human being who's been upheld as a national hero was deeply flawed as an individual and shouldn't be reduced to this figure that we uh, that we venerate by erecting statues. So, back to your question of the purpose that statues and monuments serve. They, they serve the purpose. Of reducing the violent complexity of past and present, and the fragmentation of the nation into a singular narrative that can be celebrated and that can be that can be rallied around. That process is never complete. Statues never um, serve the uh, the total purpose that they're intended to. For one thing, they they tend to fall into ruin. They decay. Um, so um, for all their proclamations of superhuman uh, figures and national heroes, they will eventually decay and those figures will be forgotten. This is just what happens over time. Uh, They can also be be splashed with paint with the word racist and spray paint, as happens to Churchill's statue in Parliament Square. In, In some ways, statues make it easier to contest history because if statues represent these heroic figures, the ease with which they can be challenged and even pulled down demonstrates what's flawed about those narratives, demonstrates that people are not beyond the the tumultuous nature um, and the fluctuations of history. So statues do serve an important purpose for national memory, but the the fallibility of statues demonstrates the limitations of relying on them to remember the past.
2: Sometimes in debates about uh, nationalism and national memory, there's a distinction made between uh, a more wholesome or perhaps palatable form of patriotism on the one hand, which is uh, intended to be inclusive, and uh, an exclusive notion of nation or nationalism. Do you think that that distinction has any real utility or validity? And how do you think those with concerns about decolonization of um, anti-imperialism and so on can deal with the notion of nationalism? And can it be rehabilitated? Do you think that's a worthwhile project?
1: Uh, in, in a word, no. Um, That's fine. So, yeah, <laughs> I, I have more words. <laughs> They're coming. Right. So you said at the beginning that patriotism is a soft version of nationalism, or that it can be read that way. I think what's important to remember is that patriotism is nationalism by another name. And nationalism, by definition, is exclusionary. We can't proclaim who we are, we, uh, the general we are, without imagining an other we can't we can't we can't imagine who belongs without having an idea of who doesn't belong uh this is just inherent to nationalism as a project and that absolutely includes liberal nationalism to proclaim that a nation stands for fairness stands for tolerance stands for inclusion implicitly or and sometimes explicitly claims that other nations don't and that anyone who doesn't subscribe to this particular set of values has no place in the nation. That, that, that is inherent to the project of nationalism. There's really no way around that. In, in practice, it's even worse, uh, because this notion of liberal values of, of, say, civic nationalism or patriotism was constructed historically through the violent opposition of those who were seen to be unassimilable through the project of empire. I mean, one example is uh, is, uh, Algeria under the French Empire, where in theory, Algerian colonial subjects could become French citizens, but they had to renounce this imagined idea of what it meant to be Muslim in particular. And this was not what it actually meant to be Muslim, but it was the, the French imperial state's understanding of what Muslimness was. So Frenchness was constructed in opposition to this imagined Muslim other. It, it, it is a long history. It isn't unique to the 21st century at all, but we can certainly think of examples in the 20th century, sorry, in the 21st century, where, for example, in, in, in the Netherlands in 2006, a, uh, a video was, uh, was introduced and applicants for, uh, for residency were required to watch a video uh, that included a woman walking topless on a beach and two men kissing and the, uh, the, the government's narrative was that if you if you can't stomach liberalism then you have no place in the Netherlands. Well, not everyone was required to watch that video. Uh, migrants from the EU or from North America or from Australia and New Zealand were not required to watch that video because the presumption was that they shared these liberal values by extension, the, the the claim, the explicit claim in this case, was that people who were not white, not Western, in particular Muslims, were seen as having values that were incompatible with liberalism, so this is you know these these are um, examples of so-called liberal nationalism of patriotism that are seen as a soft alternative to nationalism. But really, just beneath the surface, there's a violence and there is an exclusion an exclusionary claim about who can belong and who can't, and that is a very racialized narrative. So no, I I don't think that uh, that patriotism is um, a palatable alternative to hard nationalism. I certainly don't think that that the left at the center left should should entertain these notions of of appealing. To patriotism as an alternative to um, hard-right nationalism, I-, I would argue that we need to be honest about the past, that um, memory is inescapable and uh, collective memory is, is something that we all appeal to, whether or not it's, it's built up at the national level. So there's no escaping it. But what is it that we're going to remember about the past? Are we going to appeal to statues when we think about the past? Are we going to find solace in imagined national heroes or are we going to be honest about the past? Are we going to be honest with ourselves about um, the violence of empire and the ways in which it was actively uh, forgotten throughout the 20th and into the 21st centuries? I would argue that only through honesty about the past, um, in all of its complexity, and all of its nuance, and all of its violence, can we begin to work towards a future that isn't bound by national borders or national narratives, but is bound up with the decolonial project. Well, Megan,
0: that's all we've got time for. Thanks so much for joining us. If people want to find you on Twitter while it still stands, you are at (laughs) Megan E. Tinsley or you are on Mastodon at Megan E. Tinsley at Mastodon.green. Thanks for coming on. Thank you very much for having me. Well, Andy, we will be back next week. Global Intifada is up next. See you later. See you then.
2: There are now 189 people on hunger strike. Sixty-two have sewn their lips together, including two women and five children. For Wumara, this isn't an unusual day.
0: We have an old saying in Persia that says, there is no darker colour than black. So where we were in the camp, we have two options. Are they deporting us to back to persecution, to prison, to death? or die in the camp. But I think you guys give us a third option, which is another try. They bent like half-cooked spaghetti. We didn't expect it to happen like that to the soundtrack of Amélie, a popular French movie at the time, blowing across the desert from dusty speakers. The fence began to fall, under the weight of people wanting justice, under the weight of people that had had enough.
1: Join us
2: for Woomera stories on Monday, November twenty-first and November twenty-eighth at six p.m. on 3CR. This afternoon, already they've set up camp
0: only two hundred metres from the Woomera detention centre's main gate.